Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and the cars we're drying out. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Oh, pretty good. My car is not full of water. <laughs> My car is mostly not full of water right now. Is that good enough? I mean, my car doesn't exist, so. Well, yeah. Well, my car barely exists right now. <laughs> yeah, so we had a little rain in the Midwest last week. <laughs> Just a little bit. I have a I have a fascinating piece of modern sculpture in my front, you know, at, parked in front of my house. Nice. Yeah. Um, so what have you been working on? Oh, I've been plugging away at stuff on various projects and... Uh, I guess we'll start with FM comparison. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of things that you said recently, kind of outside of the podcast, talking about, you know, really still thinking of FM comparison as kind of a test project for future version of FM perception, and then maybe even some other things you might want to make someday. And I've had this kind of lingering feeling that we're using bootstrap view which is basically a viewified version of bootstrap 4 and it's really powerful what it does but it's also very opinionated and we seem to be running into its edges pretty often and kind of doing a, an awful lot of work to work around those edges and it didn't really feel like a great foundation for lots of other apps like if we're going to make two or three apps based on this same tech stack i was kind of concerned about having to revisit those edges every time <laughs> and also kind of thinking about like looking at the wider world of design right now i think we're kind of at the beginning of a shift in design trends and i think we could end up shipping something that looks great this summer and a year from now, we look back on it and say, wow, that looks really dated because it looks like now, but it also looks like five years ago at the same time. Right. So I had a little bit of concerns about that type of stuff. Um, when we had kind of a technical meeting with friend of the show, Charles Delft, he mentioned something called Tailwind CSS, which is this other way of doing stuff <laughs> called utility first. And... Like he mentioned it, I just kind of dismissed it at the time because we were, you know, it was kind of made up that we were working on Bootstrap View. But I, you know, I saved a link to it and decided to revisit it last week. And then I had a aggressive sales pitch with Dave. He was, you know, I really had to twist his arm, um, which actually didn't happen. And we're just like, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I, I uh, originally selected Bootstrap View because I knew I needed some kind of display library and i went online and said what display libraries work particularly well with view and got a nice list and looked at them and said bootstrap looks the nicest and seems to have most of the stuff we're generally going to need let's use that but that was the extent of my commitment level mm -hmm. yeah and it, it it is that like it does look nice and it does have most of the stuff that we need but it's, it's very opinionated, particularly Bootstrap View, not so much Bootstrap yeah. itself, but Bootstrap View is very opinionated in how to make these things. And, you know, it's a small project. I'm not sure how many developers are on it, but I don't think a small team can necessarily accommodate 
every single feature that people want. But yeah, I, anyway, I bumped into the same kind of problems you were bumping into, but I was pretty sure the problem was me, not them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily like that. I don't want to say there's anything wrong with no, it. No. It's not broken. It's, it's functioning as advertised. But we end up in these situations where we can't do something using a particular element and then we're left either completely rebuilding the element from scratch or using the element as they have it and then just basically trying to customize that logic in a way that's not really intuitive. So yeah, it just, I don't know, a lot of the stuff we've run into so far, it, it's just kind of like, I wouldn't feel good about, you know, if I was thinking about this from a Swift UI app that I was making last year, I wouldn't feel good about having this big dependency that kind of boxes me into a corner over and over and over again. So, yeah. So instead we're checking out Tailwind and I really only worked with it for a day and I already really like it. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that's not just like shiny new right. syndrome. Um, but I've been spending some time this weekend watching videos about it and reading about it and just kind of learning how it works. But it's a much different approach. Like Bootstrap is more of a, a design guide or, you know, set of prefabricated things that you use with these styles. And Tailwind is more of like a giant collection of tiny classes that apply a single style or behavior to an element. And then you just, you know, add as many classes to a div or an object as you need to get the format of the object that you want. So it's much closer to like modifiers when I was working mm -hmm. in Swift UI. You make an object and then you give it as many modifiers as you need. If you want to reuse the same set of modifiers over and over again, you can abstract them out into its own object. I forget the exact syntax for that, like the exact phrase for that in Tailwind, but I found the documentation for that. Um, but the, the classes that you're using each do one thing. So this is going to add some padding. This is going to change the background color. This is going to change the font. This is going to add an underline. Like each of these are just little pieces that we add instead of saying, I need my, you know, page 13 title and my page 13 subtitle, like, all, you know, all these kind of like nested styles for, we'd have specific class names for each element. We don't have to get into that type of, frankly, rat's nest of CSS. <laughs> which is the stuff I always try to avoid. So, so far, I really like it. I redid the sidebar layout last week on Friday morning in, I don't know, less than two hours. Like it was pretty easy to go and do it. I haven't replaced everything that Bootstrap View was doing for us. Um, so there is no keyboard navigation built into that. And there is no, as of right now, I haven't actually done any way of highlighting the row that you've selected which is just i just haven't done that yet but it does work so you could pull down the latest version of the development code on that branch and it would you know load some ddrs and it will show you data for in the items list when you click on a category it just won't show you what category you clicked on so i need to figure that out so some of the edges or some of the things i need to figure out about working with Tailwind is how do I add dark mode support? And 
I found a couple of different approaches this morning. Some just there's a a dependency that we could add, like a plugin that we could add. That is one approach, and I found this other article that sounds really interesting, but almost seems too good to be true. <laughs> uh, um, of basically adding a variant, adding I guess the equivalent of just adding a listener for the browser event for when we change display modes. And then essentially we would use that variant as a prefix for things that we're using. So it, it could be a, a variant that returns a bool value and it could say dark mode colon, you know, background color equal is this. And mm -hmm. it, would, it would apply that background color if dark mode is true. So we would still in line, we could have our regular background color and our dark mode background color right in line. Okay. So it's kind of a different way of approaching it, but actually gives us much more granular control at every single element where we want to say apply dark mode to everything. But for these specific things, I want more control over their appearance in dark mode or less control, things like that. So it's, it's weird. It's very weird, but <laughs> I really like it so far. I did a horrible job explaining what Tailwind is. And if you want to learn more about it, then I'll leave a link in the show notes and maybe find some resources of people that can explain it better than I can because I have no idea what I'm talking about at this point. But it's really cool. <laughs> and the fact that you could rebuild the sidebar in a day or so is a really good sign because it's a non-trivial chunk of UI. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was relatively easy. And it was when it was done, it was probably 30 to 40% less code than the Bootstrap View version. Woohoo! So just less stuff. It is more, it is less scrutable code. Like it is just kind of like, you know, here's a div and a class and here's 15 things in that class. But uh, once you learn what they are, it's hard to make sense. That's what I have you for, Joe. Yeah. I mean, hopefully I can, part of my goal with this is to leave this in a state where you don't need me for long-term stuff. <laughs> like you're welcome to continue paying me as long as you like, but I don't want you to have to come to me every time you need to make a change to this thing in you know three years. So hopefully I, I make something that is, has a strong enough foundation where you're comfortable just diving in and changing stuff. Very cool. So aside from your project, I've been plugging away at other consulting stuff. I wrapped up deployment on one project, which was actually a FileMaker SOAP API integration. And yeah, this is 2020. And yeah, I said SOAP API. <laughs> Believe me, we, we did fight back about this, but we lost. So I was doing that for a, a, kind of a subcontracting project for a friend of mine. And uh, we shipped that last week. And I've also been working on this big PHP web app for some of my education clients. And basically I'm converting the entire web app from using the FileMaker custom web publishing PHP API to using the new FileMaker data API. And for the most part, it's just converting one chunk of PHP to another. So I mentioned a couple shows ago that I found the PHP quote unquote library. It's really just a single PHP file. It's like, you know, just 
basically the PHP version of all of the new data API calls. Um, just a, a simple class to use and it's, it's actually really nice. And I picked that because I can reason about it and if I had to make changes to it myself, I can. Like it's not some big monster class that I would ne never be able to figure out on my own. So I've been working on that for the last, I don't know, it feels like the last 50 years. There's just so much of it. <laughs> um, and plugging away at that, I think I'm down, I did one this morning, so I'm down to 14 pages left out of around 70 altogether. And there was one a couple weeks ago that took me an entire day by itself. It was just a massive kind of dashboard style interface where essentially, you know, wasn't editing any data, but it was getting data from at least 15 different tables. So different finds and get record requests and pulling it all into one place. So that was a monster. And of course, like I'm, I'm not really working with a local PHP environment. So I really just have some basic syntax highlighting in VS code without really any debugging set up. So it's just kind of like, does it work now? Does it work now? And really like, either get it working or nothing works at all. And there's not really anything in between those two states. So mm. go refresh the page, the entire page is broken or everything is working. So it can, it's a lot of fun. But I've got, you know, 14 more of those to do. Hopefully I'll have it done in the next couple of weeks. And the reason I mentioned that is because I've been working on that and working on your project and working on the SOAP API project and working on some sales stuff and some other websites. It kind of feels like I don't even touch FileMaker anymore, but um, I haven't really had a chance to dive into any of the WebXR stuff or really any of my other side project stuff. And I kind of took that stuff off of my plate for now to really focus on getting this PHP thing done because it is kind of taking up more space in my mind than I want it to. Mm -hmm. And it's the type of work that is intellectually devoid of stimulus, but also incredibly strenuous. Like you have to pay a whole lot of attention to it. Um, so it takes up a lot of effort, you know, full attention focused work for two or three hours at a time with none of the payoff of like, Hey, I'm making something new. Cause I'm not, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I made something new in 2017 and now I'm just make, you know, making changes to it. Hey, congratulations. It does what it did six hours ago, just in a different way. Yeah. So I want to get that done so I can get back to some of the more creative work over the next couple of weeks. But uh, in the meantime, I've had to kind of, you know, stay away from web VR stuff. And aside from last week, I did attend a, uh, Microsoft had their developer event last week called Microsoft Build. I think it was Monday and Tuesday was the official conference. And then they had a mixed reality thing on Wednesday and Thursday. And the, the mixed reality one, they actually had events hosted in VR in a place called AltSpace, which I mentioned last episode. And most of the track, or most, yeah, most of the sessions were stuff that I didn't particularly care about. A lot of it was around the HoloLens, working with Unity in the HoloLens, working with Unreal Engine in the HoloLens. But they did have one session on Thursday or Friday that was all about um, Babylon JS and WebXR. 
So I went to see that. It was kind of cool just to, you know, hang out with a bunch of other developers listening to this talk, getting a kind of a crash course on what Babylon JS is, which is apparently something that exists. And I don't know how I've completely missed this over the years. I've been following <laughs> the VR industry pretty well, but I've never heard of it. And it looks really cool. It, it looks like a full-blown game engine, like feature-rich game engine built in JavaScript. And there is kind of a scene builder that you can use right into the browser. There's all kinds of features that you would not expect to be able to do in JavaScript. It, it's actually really, really cool. I'm not sure that I'll switch to it from A-Frame for a lot of the simple stuff I want to do, but it's definitely something I want to spend some more time diving into to see what I can build with it, particularly if I wanted to do something that's going to be, like a lot of the stuff I want to build is using elements from a game engine, but really just building experiences and productivity tools. But if I want to build any kind of game thing, then I would probably skew towards Babylon JS because it has all those features that you would expect from Unity, but not in Unity. So aside from that, I'm also just kind of looking forward to WWDC. That's coming up in just over or under a month from now. It's usually early June, but I guess it can be late June this year. And uh, mainly just looking forward to that to see if Swift UI gets better. Like there's a bunch of stuff I want to do for retrospective timelines that I just, every time I open Xcode, I just shut it down. I'm like, I'm not willing to put up with this much frustration right now. Yeah. Like it's just, I've, I've reached the edges of Swift UI from every direction. I know how big it is <laughs> and there's nothing left to explore. So like, I'm just going to wait until they expand the world and add a new update. But for now, it's not fun to play there. So hopefully they'll have some new stuff for me. And, you know, I guess my my WWDC wish list would be make it possible for me to code on an iPad or release a Mac with a touchscreen. I don't care which one. Either one would make me happy. <laughs> but having, you know, what, six weeks now of a touchscreen laptop, like, I don't want to go back to not having that. And I'm using my Mac right now to record the show, and I there's fingerprints all over it because I can't stop myself from touching the screen, even though that does nothing. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Anyway, what are you working on? Well, uh, my my car was half underwater about a week ago, about about fifty percent. Nice. Um, so uh, it, it's fun because the electrical system is messed up badly enough that I can't roll the windows down to let it air out. And I can't disengage the parking brake, which is electromagnetically engaged. So I can't even roll it back into the sun. So it's currently in the shade with relatively warm, semi-dry air blowing across it with one of the doors cracked open, which is the best I can do. The good news is nobody can steal my car right now. <laughs> so leaving it open isn't that big of a problem, but... Ugh, just not fun yeah so we'll we'll see if another couple of days doesn't get it back to a point where it's at least partially uh partially operable and if that doesn't happen then it's just a big 
towing job and long conversations with the insurance company. Yay. Mm-hmm. Which is really what I need right now is more freaking distractions. So you can choose to think of it as your car got flooded, but maybe you should think about it as your car was baptized. <laughs> yeah. Um, a big chunk of my work for the last two weeks was FM Perception 19. Mm. So new version of FM Perception because there's a new version of FileMaker. Um, yeah. It's funny. I heard about that from you. It's <laughs> not as clued in as I used to be. Um, a couple hours after we last recorded, I finally got all the dots connected to get my digital signing certificate for Windows. So mm. I'm a real company again on the Windows side. For um, three years. And then promptly broke it. <clears throat> <laughs> because part of the thing that, I got to be honest, doesn't completely make sense to me is that it somehow gathers the identity of the machine that's requesting the signing certificate from the mm. browser. Hmm. And they weren't really clear that you needed to request all of this stuff from the machine that's going to be doing the work. So I just filled out all the requests in Safari on Mac. Oh, and so they said, now you have to grab it from the same thing that you requested the cert from so okay i hop into safari and grab it and now that's not substantively usable on windows so contact the company and i basically had to get reapproved. although it happened much faster this time because they could see that 24 hours earlier they had approved me as well like four hours earlier they had approved me as a real company <clears throat> so get reapproved again after requesting from windows and that's all good now huge pain in the tail the the apple way of approaching this is in many ways so much nicer which is a very weird thing to say um and uh there's a a lot of cool stuff in FileMaker 19 for FileMaker developers. Mm-hmm. But there's not a ton of stuff that I needed to add to FM Perception to bring it up to spec. So there's some new script steps and some new functions and a couple of XML tweaks. But nothing really huge. Like no new thing that you can copy and paste in FileMaker. Which was always kind of a pain because I had to support that in FM Perception, so you could copy out of FM Perception and paste back into FileMaker. Um, you know, just it was it was relatively straightforward to add support to FM Perception for FileMaker 19. Um, I'm not going to talk substantively about this. If you're really interested in it, I talked a lot about it um, with Jeremy Brown on Geist Interactive's The Context podcast the uh, May 21st, 2020 episode. So if you Mm -hmm. want to hear lots more about FM Perception 19 and FileMaker 19, check that out. One thing that really I'm kind of excited about for FileMaker 19 is they released a kind of a developer preview of FileMaker Server for Linux, Mm. which is kind of cool because I've... not really interested in using it in production right now because it's obviously going to be way too early for that. But my dev server has always been on a Mac 
because I don't want to pay for the Windows server licensing to run it on a Windows machine. And the downside of having it on a Mac is I don't have a static IP at, at home where I work. So I end up using some crappy workarounds to be able to access it outside of my network and those workarounds don't always work. So right now I can only access my dev server from in my office, which is fine because I haven't really left home for the last three months. <laughs> but I would like that to be more generally available. So, you know, I've looked at getting a dev server, you know, on AWS or somewhere else, but the cost just never really makes sense for me because this is something that I really just use for development files, like copies of files that I'm working on. And especially the last couple of years, the economics don't really make sense. Like I'm not doing enough FileMaker work to really justify taking on, you know, hundred bucks a month for FileMaker hosting. Mm -hmm. So the, the Linux thing makes sense because I could, or it's interesting because I can get a much cheaper server to install it on. Right. Much cheaper hosting than all the, you know, most of the Windows servers have the Windows server licensing built into the cost, which is why that stuff can be very expensive. But uh, if I can get, you know, a 10 or $20 a month Linode server that can run this, you know, even if it's a bare bones configuration, I really only need it for me to be able to connect to and to test, you know, REST API calls and stuff like that. So... I probably won't do that until I wrap up this PHP project because I just don't want to, I don't want to poke the house of cards that this mm. stuff is built on right now. I just want to get the project done. Yeah. But maybe, maybe this summer, you know, early July, I'll have a chance to play with that and see if I can get my dev server out of my office. Very cool. See, that's one of those things that's new to 19 that I've paid almost no attention to because it doesn't have any FM perception impact whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Like the platform that your server runs on doesn't substantively impact the DDR XML. So, me. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, very cool. Um, and while I was wrapping that up, uh, started getting back into um, trying to get over the hump with Electron and .NET. Um, there's a bunch of problems that we that I'd really like to solve in the platform and Electron standardizes all of that stuff. And it was going to be great if I could find a way to get my back end working and was working with a, a technology called Electron CGI, which has a NPM module and a sibling uh, .NET library. And so you pull both of those in and then they can communicate back and forth in theory. <clears throat> in practice, I finally got it working. So I can build the .NET core and then build it into an Electron app and it works. The primary issue I was having was with pathing. So you have to tell it where to find the that backend core. And, you know, in in one version of your app, you may need a path to a bunch of source files. In another version of your Electron app, you need a path to the compiled app, but leaving it where it is. And then there's also a version where you need a path to the bundled app core that the build process has thrown into your application. 
and having the JavaScript correctly identify which of those situations that it's in and then figuring out its point of context and how to find a path to that appropriate spot took quite a bit of effort. Um, but I finally got it working. It works. It works great. And then everything fell apart. Um, <laughs> because as far as I can tell, there doesn't seem to be any way to sign and notarize an app built this way. So you can finally build it and now you can't sign it. Right. Right. And that should be like the, that should be the subtitle of the show. <laughs> Project update. You can't sign it. You can't sign it. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, nobody really seems to care. <laughs> like all these technologies that are designed to let you run .NET code in Electron seem to have a primarily Linux or Windows focus. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's Electron people who want to use .NET in Windows. And so in a couple of different projects, I looked and basically the project maintainer's approach was it meets my needs and I don't even have a Mac to test on. So yeah, if you want to mess with it, go for it. And it's so far beyond my skill level to try and tackle that kind of problem at that level that mm -hmm. I, I got nothing. So basically trying to do this so that it works as a first class signed and notarized application on Macintosh just doesn't seem to work. So yeah, after all of that effort, bundle that one up, throw it away. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't fail. I found another way that doesn't work. Yes. Let's just throw that in the zip folder of shame. <laughs> no, it's, it's permanently part of our, uh, our Git, uh, repository so hmm. just off on a branch that will very likely never be merged in um because i'm just not willing to release an unsigned app to mac users yeah um on one side there's just security um i want to make sure that this thing is properly locked down so it can't become an infection vector for users um and simultaneously, I want the users to have the confidence that it's not one of those things. Mm -hmm. And so whatever steps I can take to be able to show them in kind of a trivial sort of way that this is an app they can have confidence in, I want to do. And if I yeah. can't do that, it really loses a lot of points in my head, even though in a lot of cases, I'm betting a lot of my users wouldn't care. Like, I think I think there would also be, to some extent, an additional support overhead of people contacting the support and say, hey, is this safe to install? Mm -hmm. Is this the real version? Has this like been Mac, hacked? Mac, yeah, macOS is telling me not to install this. Like, yeah. You don't want to get hundreds of those. Yeah. And um, some of my users are in relatively controlled hardware and software environments. And so they can't install software on their machines. They have to go to IT. And IT is going to get really twitchy about installing unsigned, unnotarized applications. It just gets me over a ton of humps if 
the application acts the way IT people would expect a good quality app to appear. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. So until that gets resolved, Electron's just off the board. I'm just done. I'm not going to go poking at it again until something pops up that says, hey, we support all the stuff and it's awesome. So that then got me back into menus, which was part of the reason I was pursuing Electron, was trying to get menus and keyboard shortcuts and things like that working on Mac and Windows in a relatively consistent manner. And my last approach had been to try and make Mac and Windows basically follow the same pattern, which was having the browser catch the key commands and then pass on to the uh, native wrapper the key commands it should care about. And it kind of sort of worked, but it definitely sucked on both platforms. It was it was not exceptionally good on Mac or Windows. Um, and I was, I was just trying to like borrow an Electron centralized cross-platform design concept to my platform. But this is code that, that is in the platform dependent section of the applications. Like there's, there's sections of my code that are cross-platform and are designed to be so. And then there's stuff that I just said, this can be different. This is in the code that is in the platform specific section of the thing. So trying to push too hard to make it cross-platform or, or mirrored in the Mac and Windows version just kind of started to feel a little silly. And so I, the new version kind of lets Mac be Mac and lets Windows be Windows. And after ripping out a couple of connections and making a couple of the pieces toggle functionality based upon whether they're on Mac and Windows, it seems to work on both. So (laughs) the Mac version, for whatever reason now, is properly responding to key commands defined in the menu system, even if you're clicked into the browser. It doesn't seem to care. And I've got the code set aside so that if we bump into a weird spot, I can bring in a small portion of it again. But that's really just for... um, That code is around suppressing system beeps. Hmm. So if you hit a key command and the browser handles it and the Mac code shouldn't pay any attention... I need to tell the Mac version, this key command doesn't talk to you. It's being handled elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so there's a little chunk of code for that. And the Windows version actually does need to um, eat these key commands at the browser level and pass them up when necessary. So that's all basically working. The only outstanding issue appears to be something having to do with the way that Windows deals with an on-screen tap. Mm -hmm. As opposed to dealing with a mouse click. There's some difference in the way that it does that. And I would like to dig into it and figure it out. If for no other reason than Joe uses a touchscreen Windows machine. And it will drive him 
bonkers. Um, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't put too much effort into that. Yeah. It was just something that I noticed when I was testing. <clears throat> okay. But I can't imagine there are that many. I don't know. I would love to hear from other FileMaker developers if you're using a touchscreen, but the I can't imagine there are many because the touch experience in FileMaker itself isn't very good. So I, I would imagine everybody's using a mouse or a trackpad. Yeah. I'm going to set aside half an hour or an hour to do some research to yeah. see if it's something that's basically trivial for me to handle. It's possible that it can be as simple as a single line of code that says treat taps as if they were mouse clicks. Yeah. And if that's all it takes, then great. I will tell it to treat taps as mouse clicks and we will move on. My experience in Windows suggests that it's probably not going to be that simple and that it will actually be 300 lines of code and some weird libraries that have to be pulled in. But until I do the research, I won't know for sure. Um, <clears throat> so what this means is we have the ability to use platform native menuing on both sides, um, which I would prefer on the Mac side. Mm -hmm. On the Windows side, I'll kind of leave it to you, Joe. We can do it now. We don't have to. If you really think a JavaScript one is a better way to go on Windows, then let's no. run with it. No, I think it's only a better way to go if we're going to do it in both places. Okay. Like, I don't think it's necessarily a better solution. I guess no matter what. I think it's it's a secondary choice if the menuing wasn't working okay. in a reliable way. But it sounds like you got it working, so we'll go for menus. Yeah. Well, I do want to... I'm going to set up two different builds and uh, clean up some of the code, set up two different builds and pass them back to you for testing. Okay. Because they're working in my testing, but that doesn't mean they actually work because testing is obnoxious and hard and I just find it difficult, particularly to test my own UIs. Mm -hmm. I end up too often clicking along the optimal path and not the suboptimal path. Yeah, when I'm done selling you design services, I should sell you some testing. <laughs> <laughs> is I, that... I just wear a different hat to work that day or something. Is it is it cheaper? Because... <laughs> anyway. Um... How involved do you want the testing? <laughs> <laughs> do you want results from the tests? Um, r results would be good. Yes. Mm, yeah, <laughs> just, that's extra. Just black box. Uh, yeah, didn't work. Yep, didn't work. Or it worked. I think it worked. <laughs> like, what what level of confidence do you want from the testing? <laughs> I would I would like a fairly high degree of confidence, please. Crap. Could have like an ambiguity slider on my website. <laughs> <laughs> do you just want to be able to check the box that says this was tested? Mm -hmm. that is a service i can offer yep i will check that box for you um <laughs> so with uh evan perception 19 out and i haven't been getting a lot of bug reports about it hmm. um so that's good um i found a technique for getting the um the translation stuff done so 
FileMaker internal functions are written in specifically localized languages. And so you have a bunch of functions that basically have synonyms in weird typography. And so I usually, I previously had to wait for the new version to release so I could get into their localized documentation to figure out um, what the different translated versions were. So, you know, get application version is called something different in half a dozen of the 10 languages that FileMaker supports. But I figured out a way to, to get all of that before release. So, yay. And no complaints there. So, I think I can just get back full-time into FM Perception and see if I can move my portion of this bloody thing forward. Which, FM comparison? Yes, FM comparison. Back into FM comparison. Yeah, I've got all kinds of exciting JSON for you to reformat. Yes, yes. There's a couple of fun things that we've got to dig into where um, I, when I make a change on my end, it's going to break things on Joe's end. Not catastrophically, mm -hmm. but definitely mess with. And so chasing those things around is going to be a little fun. But Yeah, I mean, you've got a couple of days before I catch up to, you know, I've got to redo the configuration screen and I've got to redo the items list before I get to the card layout. So, you know, I got a couple things to redo in Tailwind before I get back to cards. Gotcha. So if I do this right, you'll merge all your code in from the Tailwind branch and then the app won't work at all mm -hmm. <laughs> because I will have changed the communication pipelines between the two too substantively. Something like that. Yay. Awesome. Let's do it.